It's going to be Acts chapter 11, verses 1 to 18, for a sermon I've entitled, Even Gentiles. Here's what it says. Now the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised took issue with him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began speaking and proceeded to explain to them in orderly sequence, saying, I was in the city of Joppa, praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, an object coming down like a great sheet lowered by four corners from the sky, and it came right down to me. And when I had fixed my gaze on it and was observing it, I saw the four-footed animals of the earth and wild beasts and crawling creatures and birds of the air. I also heard a voice saying to me, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing unholy or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But a voice from heaven answered a second time, what God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. This happened three times, and everything was drawn back up into the sky. And behold, at that moment, three men appeared at the house in which we were staying, having been sent to me from Caesarea. The Spirit told me to go with them without any misgivings. These six brethren also went with me, and we entered the man's house. And he reported to us that he had seen an angel standing in his house and said, Send to Joppa and have Simon, who is also called Peter, brought here. And he will speak words to you by which you will be saved, you and your household. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did upon us at the beginning. I remembered the words of our Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave them the same gift as he gave us, also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Well, when they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. You know, back in 2011, Jean-Michel Severino and Olivier Ray, French authors, co-authored a book entitled Africa's Moment. In it, they argued that just as the 19th century was the century of Europe and the 20th century was the century of America, so the 21st century would be the century of Africa. With population growth leveling off and beginning to decline in all of the West, Africa's population is expected to grow from 1.6 billion people today to 4.28 billion people by the end of the century. At that point, the continent will account for 39% of the world's population, Severino and Ray believe that not only will Africans be the biggest consumers of the world's goods, but by that time they will also be the greatest producers as well. But you know, that begs the question. Why hasn't it happened yet? I mean, considering they already have a large population and landmass and vast resources, why is the African continent historically lagged behind, so far behind the world as far as development? Well, different answers have been set forth over the years. At one time, many Western thinkers were convinced that Africans, particularly black Africans, were just genetically inferior. I mean, they didn't have the intelligence necessary to develop a complex society. I mean, the Renaissance, the Enlightenment, modern science, industrial revolution, all began in Europe among light-skinned people. Of course, this is the type of racism that allowed them to enslave Africans without compunction. On the other hand, many Africans today blame most of their problems on the lingering effects of colonialism. European countries divided up the continent and ruled over much of Africa during the 19th and 20th century. And most of these African nations have only been independent for less than 100 years. I mean, it takes time to develop. Hopes were high when independence was finally achieved, but most of the countries, the standard of living actually went down after they achieved freedom. Well, some argue that 
One of the great barriers is just of, to development is just simple geography. The United States has 25,000 miles of navigable uh, rivers. Africa has a landmass three times our size, but they only have half the miles of rivers, and most of them are not navigable, and very few of them reach to the sea, so it makes it difficult to do international travel. Add to that the fact that sleeping sickness made the use of horses uncommon, and it's not surprising they would la lag so far behind. But there's another reason, another factor that I think has retarded Africa's ascension, and that's simply tribalism. You know what a family is? It's a father and a mother and their children. A clan is a group of families related by blood, and a tribe is an ethnic group where all the people are related. Well, I remember talking to a European or an Ethiopian girl, rather, at the mall. And she told me that she was a Muslim. And I asked her if she identified primarily as an Ethiopian or by her tribe. And she said, oh, in Africa, everybody identifies by their tribe. She said, your tribe is your identity, your culture, your language, your religion. It's your security and what affords you your opportunities. He said, your tribe is your in-group, and everyone else is the out-group. Members of your tribe are your friends, viewed as. On the other side, though, the outsiders are often viewed as enemies. Many of the wars that have taken place in Africa since independence have had an ethnic component to them. In 1994, the Hutu-led government of Rwanda targeted the Tutsis. In a mere two months, 800,000 people were murdered, many of them just macheted to death. About 75% of the Tutsi population died in the mass killings. I mean, it's hard to buy, uh, build a unified nation if the people are at each other's throats. I mean, just think about the practical problems, though, of having, for instance, more than one language. The French-speaking Quebec area of Canada has always been at odds with the Ottawa government, which is English-speaking. They only have two languages that they struggle with, but the country of Nigeria has 500 different languages spoken in their nation. Well, what does that problem of tribalism have to do with our text today? Well, simply this. For the Jews in the New Testament time, their tribe, their in-group, were the people of Israel, the descendants of Jacob. Everyone else, the Gentiles, were outsiders. But that dividing line between the Jew and Gentile was not simply an ethnic one, but also a religious one. Jews were the people of the covenant, the covenant with God. Gentiles were outsiders outside of the covenant. And many, at the time, thought outside of the reach of the grace of God. But they were wrong, those who thought that. For not only was God's grace extended through Christ to the Jews, as we saw in chapter 2 at Pentecost, but also in chapter 8, to the half-breed Samaritans. And then here, shock of shocks, God's grace is extended even to the Gentiles. Well, that extension of grace to the Gentiles was one that the Jewish followers of Jesus were not expecting, and one they had a hard time processing and working through, but one they certainly could not deny after this day. So last week we considered this watershed moment uh, that took place at the house of Cornelius when a number of Gentiles were converted. This week we want to consider the reaction of the Jewish believers in Jerusalem when they heard of God's grace being extended to the Gentiles, and also we want to think about our own attitude towards outsiders that we're trying to reach with the gospel. So why don't we pray and get into the text. Father God, I do pray for grace and mercy. This was an important event, one that has uh, history-changing significance to it. And so, Father, we pray that we would understand it and also appreciate it because we are the beneficiaries of it. So bless us now as we look at your text. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, what do we see in the text? Well, first of all, the thing, first thing I see is the complaint lodged. That's verses 1 to 3. The complaint lodged. Second, the explanation given, meaning by Peter, and that's 4 to 17. And finally, the conclusion drawn by the church, and that's verse 18. The complaint lodged. By the way, can you imagine working at a complaints department for a company? 
I mean, all day and every day, all you would do is listen to people, irate people and angry customers telling you how horrible your product was and how disappointed they were that they purchased it. Yes, ma'am. I'm sorry to hear that. Do you have a receipt? No. Well, the best we can do is exchange it or give you credit for your next purchase. I cannot give you cash back without a receipt. Next. I actually heard a 911 call uh, where a woman phoned into the police station from a fast food restaurant. Uh, was she upset because she had been assaulted or robbed? Was she carjacked? No. She was upset because the restaurant didn't get her order right. I ordered a Western burger with bacon and cheese and barbecue sauce, and they have gotten it wrong twice. The 911 operator first thought it was a prank, but no, the woman was serious. She wanted the police to come out and make this young employee fix her order. The kid offered to refund her money, but no, I want my Western burger. But he couldn't even fix it even if he wanted to because the burger was a seasonal offering, and they had discontinued it a couple weeks before that. They didn't have any barbecue sauce left. Now, the complaint lodged against Peter was not for something as trivial as hamburger, but it did have to do with eating. But the Jewish followers lodged a complaint that showed that they were a long way off in understanding and appreciating the grace of God that comes through Christ in the new covenant that he inaugurated through his death. Look again at what it says in verse 1. Now, the apostles and the brethren who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. Now, this should have been great news. I mean, you remember Jesus said that the angels in heaven rejoice when one sinner repents. How much more should saved sinners like them and us rejoice when another sinner receives the word of God so as to be saved? But look at how they responded. They said this, And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised, meaning the Jewish believers, took issue with him, saying, You went to an uncircumcised man and ate with him. I mean, these Jewish followers of Jesus, which probably included most of the other 11 apostles, were upset. They were offended. They were very concerned that Peter, one of the in-group, not only had visited, but also ate with a bunch of pagan Gentiles. I mean, the, the men were gasping, the women were clutching their pearls, and everyone was wondering if Peter had lost his mind or at least his proper Jewish bearings. They probably said something like this, Peter, you know that we've been taught by the rabbi since we were kids that you have no dealings with the Gentiles. I mean, sure, we live among them, but we don't spend time with them, welcome them into our house, and for certain, we don't sit down and eat with them. Now, you have to understand, in the Middle East then, as it is even today, the act of eating with a person was the suggestion that you had fellowship and a relationship with them. Remember when they carved against Jesus, when he ate with Matthew and the tax collectors who were gathered at his house. They said this, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered said to him, it's not those who are well who need a physician, but for those, those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. Luke 5, 30 to 32. I mean, there are, I have to say this though, there are people that you are not supposed to eat with. Did you know that? Writing to the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul wanting to straighten out some of their confused ideas said this, in 1 Corinthians 5, 9 to 13, I wrote to you in my letter uh, telling you not to associate with immoral people. I didn't mean the immoral people of this world or the covetous or the swindlers or the idolaters, for then you'd have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother, meaning a professed Christian, if he's an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or swindler, not to even eat with such a one. For what do we have to do with judging outsiders? But do we not judge those within the church? But those who are outside God judges, remove the wicked man from among you. In other words, they were tolerating sin. There was a guy who was sleeping with his mother-in-law, or his uh, stepmother, and the church was fine with it. We're a church of grace, they said. 
Well, the Mosaic law didn't actually forbid Jews from eating with Gentiles. Uh, rather, they were told not to imitate their ways. This was just the teaching of the rabbis. As Jesus complained against them all the time that they put the traditions of men above the commandments of God. Two quick illustrations that indicate we can still have this attitude in the church. When I was in college at Northwestern, um, there was a Mexican evangelist who came to speak to our class one time. And uh, he would go around to churches through the Southwest and do crusades where he preached the gospel. And when he did, he would often bring with him young men who he had witnessed who got saved, who he was training to be evangelists. Well, this was in the late 60s, early 70s, and they came to one church. And you remember at that time, guys wore their hair a little bit longer. And uh, the pastor of the church, when he saw one of the kids with longer hair, said, no, no, he can't speak here. Either he has to get his hair cut or he can't speak here. Well, they suggest, well, maybe if he wets it down or wears it a certain way so it isn't so noticeable. No way. We're not having any long-haired kids speaking in our church. Now, I don't remember whether he actually got his hair cut or he just didn't give his testimony. But the evangelist gave his message and a whole bunch of people came forward. And then he had him fill out cards so that the pastor could follow up with him later on. Well, they went off to another church and they came back a little bit later on. And he met with the pastor again and he found out the pastor hadn't followed up with anyone who had signed a card. Now you ask me, I ask you this question. Which do you think is more offensive to God? Your hair coming over your ears or indifference to the souls of men? Jesus talked about straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. That's an example. Dave Thomas, the guy I uh, listened to, he told of a pastor he knew who was witnessing to a woman who was a madam. She was a pimp for prostitutes. The woman ended up getting saved, and so she started to invite her former workers to church, and some of the people in the church were upset that this kind of, these kind of women were coming in to hear the gospel. But Jesus said, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I mean, to complain that there's sinners in the church is like complaining that there's sick people in the hospital. Where else are they going to go? By the way, I have to say, the best insult that I ever received was when someone complained about me. They said, Pastor Doug is a sinner, and he even admits it. Yes, I do. And if you're a Christian... You do as well. Well, after hearing the complaint that was lodged, the next thing we find is the explanation given. Now, we live in an age of what we call cancel culture, where people make accusations against the person, usually someone well-known. And before the charges are substantiated or proven, that person is denounced, deplatformed, demonetized, shamed, shunned, and shut out of polite society. There's people who've lost their jobs, not because they neglected their work duties, but because they posted some comment that was considered politically incorrect. And even when that person goes back onto social media and grovels and begging for forgiveness for not holding the right views, they're often still branded as a bigot and a hateful person. By the way, this is all very similar to what you saw in China during the Cultural Revolution with the, uh, with the Red Guard, the young people, where they'd bring other people out and they'd put wooden plaques around them with names on them and then they would denounce on them and everyone would spit them. I remember one lady who was a Christian, she said she was spit on so much she was literally soaked by the time it was over. Well, some of the people at this time probably wanted to cancel Peter, but they at least gave him an opportunity to defend himself, and he did so by simply recounting the events that led to his infraction. Look what it says in verse 4. But Peter began saying and proceeded to explain to them in orderly sequence, saying, I was in the city of Joppa, praying in a trance. I saw a vision, and an object coming down like a great sheet, lowered by four corners from the sky, and it came right down to me, and when I fixed my gaze on it and observing, I saw four-footed creatures, animals of the earth and wild beasts and crawling creatures, uh, the birds of the air, and I heard a voice say, get up, Peter, kill and eat. He said, by no means, Lord. I've never 
Nothing unholy or unclean has ever entered my mouth, but the voice from heaven answered a second time, said, what God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. This happened three times and everything was drawn back up into the sky. Now notice that this is the third time in two chapters we've had this exact story repeated. You know, the Bible repeats things for emphasis. So when Jesus wanted to emphasize a point, he would say something like, truly, truly, I say to you. Or he wants to emphasize the holiness of God, which we're going to be speaking about in the Sunday school class. The angels say, holy, holy, holy. So they would repeat things for emphasis. Well, if we get the same story three times in two chapters, this is a significant event. Look what it says in verse 11. And behold, at that moment, Peter said, three men appeared in the house, which I was staying in, who had been sent from Caesarea. The Spirit told me to go with them without misgivings. Now, these six brethren also went with me. We entered the man's house, and he reported to us that he had seen an angel standing in his house and saying, Send a Joppa, and have Simon, who is also called Peter, brought here, and he will speak to you words by which you will be saved, you and all your household. So God was setting up this historical event. An angel was sent to Cornelius, who spoke to him in a vision. Peter was not only given a vision, but specifically told by the Holy Spirit to go with these three men who had been sent by Cornelius. Peter doesn't retell the gospel message that he preached when he was gathered at Cornelius' house, but he does relate what happens as he did. Look what it says in verse 5. It says, And as I, I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as it did it to us at the beginning. Remember at Pentecost, the Jewish followers of Jesus were gathered in the upper room. Suddenly there was this sound like a rushing wind and, and what appeared to be like tongues of fire distributed and rested upon each of the believers in that room. And the 120 of them went out into the street and it says they began to uh, speak in various languages, proclaiming the praises of God. And then Peter taking the opportunity, explaining that this is what was promised by Joel the prophet, preached the gospel, and 3,000 people were converted on one day. Now on a much smaller scale, the pouring out of the Spirit happens again, but this time it's not to those who are Jews, but he's given to the Gentiles. And this stunned Peter and the six guys who were with him. He went on to say this. Explain, he said, And I remember the words of the Lord, how he used to say, John will baptize you, baptize you in water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave them the same gift that he gave us also, after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to stand in his way? By the way, if God was saving Gentiles, what was Peter to do? Tell God to stop it? I think Peter's making progress here, though, because remember, one time, Jesus said, I'm going to go up to Jerusalem, I'm going to be betrayed, and I'm going to be turned over to the Gentiles, and they're going to crucify me, and three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead. And he took Jesus aside and said, oh, forbid it, Lord, that that should ever happen to you. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. Well, that time, Peter didn't understand that the crucifixion of Christ was part of God's plan. It was at the center of God's plan. Here Peter evidently figured out that the salvation of the Gentiles as Gentiles was also part of God's plan. And he knew that this time he better not stand in the way. But the key point that we have to see here is that Peter need, and what Peter needed to understand and what we need to understand and what the Jews then needed to understand was that these Gentiles received the Holy Spirit after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not after converting to Judaism. Not after observing the Mosaic Law. Not after being circumcised. It was simply hearing the message of Christ crucified and raised from the dead and trusting in him that salvation was accomplished. You know, later on, when the Gentile Christians in Galatia had some Jewish people, Judaizers, come in to try to tell them, ooh, you really actually have to keep the Mosaic Law to be saved. 
Paul was furious. He writes back to him and he says this, You foolish Galatians, who's bewitched you? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the one thing I want to know from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now going to be perfected by the flesh? In other words, when did the Spirit come to you? It was when you heard the message and you believed it. As it says in Romans 3.28, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Anyone, Jew or Gentile, is acceptable to God, not on the basis of what they have done, but on the basis of what Christ has done. Paid for our sins, and then crediting his righteousness to our account. Forgiveness and eternal life is a gift from God, and it cannot be received except for by faith. And you can't have it if you don't accept it by faith. Cornelius and his household believed, and when they heard, and so they received the Holy Spirit and eternal life. I mean, if God had already washed away their sins by the blood of Christ, who was Peter to withhold the waters of baptism from them? You've heard that saying, either lead, follow, or get out of the way? Well, Peter at least had enough sense to get out of the way of what God was doing with the Gentiles. Pastor Doug, are you telling us that it's really just that simple? You just believe the good news about Jesus' death and resurrection as a payment for my sins, and God will accept me and grant me free eternal life as a gift? Yeah, that's exactly what I'm telling you. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's all these Gentiles at Cornelius' house needed to do to be saved. That's what they did. It's so simple a child can understand it, but it's so humbling that unless you become like a little child, you will never enter the kingdom of God. That brings us to our last point, though, the conclusion drawn. Do you know people who are not particularly good thinkers? They have problems following simple, logical arguments. Now, they might be artistic, so they can draw pictures. They might be lucky, so they can draw the right card. But when it comes to drawing conclusions from simple syllogisms, they struggle. Let's give you one. Let's see how you do. Premise one, all men are mortal. Premise two, Socrates is a man. Conclusion, therefore, Socrates, if you said a banana cream pie, you're not getting it. Okay? <laughs> do you ever watch Wheel of Fortune? That game show where they do word puzzles and the contestants spin the wheel for money and then they have to guess the letter? If the letter is found on the puzzle, the contestants keep going. They have to guess consonants, but they can occasionally buy a vowel. Have you ever had one where you're watching that, and uh, the puzzle, and uh, you got it, you know what it is. But the contestant doesn't. But the other contestants do. And everyone in the audience does. And there's like one letter left, and they still don't get it. Well, these Jewish believers back in Jerusalem may not have been game show whiz, uh, uh, whiz kids, but they could at least connect the dots and figure out the significance of the event that took place at Cornelius' house. Look what it says in verse 18. It says, when they heard this, they quieted down and they glorified God, saying, well then, and here's their conclusion that they draw, God has granted to the Gentiles the repentance that leads to life. Now there's so much that needs to be said and understood about the concept of repentance as it's laid out in the Bible that I'm going to take another whole week just to deal with that last verse next week. But I want to make some quick remarks about it even now. Repentance, the Greek word for repentance is metanoia. Meta means to change, like metamorphosis, a caterpillar changing its form. And the noia comes from the Greek word nous, which means mind. So literally to repent means to change your mind. Now the Hebrew word that's used for repentance has the idea of turning back or returning to something. So to repent means to change your mind, 
your evaluation your, about your actions and your attitudes and the way you've been living, and then to turn back to God as a result of it. So it's to go from the wrong way back onto the right path. And that's what happened to Cornelius and his friends and family that day. Second thing I want to say is this, we're told here that this repentance was granted to the Gentiles by God. You see, repentance is a gift of God, just as the Bible teaches that faith is a gift of God. It's not something you can generate yourself. It's not something you can earn. If you could, it wouldn't be a gift. The third thing I want you to notice, though, is that this repentance that God granted them was a repentance that leads to life, meaning eternal life. You know, there's some pastors and theologians that argue that, uh, you know, people should repent, but it's not actually necessary to repent to be saved. They say, well, you know, the Bible tells us you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, so you don't have to repent. I don't think that position can be upheld in light of what the Bible actually teaches about repentance. The necessity of repentance for salvation is not only taught in verse 18, but consistently, including from the lips of our Lord. Now, the church in Jerusalem was able to draw the correct conclusion that the Gentiles can be saved simply by believing in Jesus. But they're going to struggle to understand and accept the implications of that uh, from this truth. But at this point, they were uh, coming to see that Gentiles, even Gentiles, could be saved simply by trusting Jesus. Well, before the conversion of Cornelius and his household, 99.9% .9 of the church was Jewish. I think the one guy who was a Gentile was the Ethiopian eunuch. Now, there were some Samaritans, but they were kind of like half-Jews. But at this point, it's going to begin to change. And by our time, 99.99% .99 of the church is Gentile, not Jewish. You know, it's hard for us today to appreciate how shocking it was to these early Jewish followers the idea that Gentiles could be saved without converting to Judaism first. These promises made to Abraham and his descendants were now being extended to those who had no blood connection to Abraham at all. Paul wanted the Ephesians to understand and appreciate just how amazing this grace was, and so he wrote this to him. He says this, Therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called the uncircumcision by those who call themselves the circumcision, meaning Jewish people, which was done in the body by human hands. Remember that at that time, this is, this is the description of our ancestors. You were separated from Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel, foreigners to the covenant of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who are far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made the two groups into one, destroying the barrier that divides the wall of hostility. By setting aside in his flesh the laws with its commandments and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to those who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, also members of his household, being built up on a foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple of God. And in him, you too are being built up together to become the dwelling place which God lives by his spirit. How odd of God to choose the Jews but odder still, if you think for a while, that God should choose us dirty Gentiles. All God's grace is amazing. Now, I don't know if those authors, Severino and Ray, are right that the next century will be Africa's moment. 
But I do know that if you're not saved today, this could be your moment. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. If you would turn from your sins and trust in God through Christ, trusting in Jesus' death as the payment for your sins, you could pass out of death and into eternal life right now. The scripture says, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Call on him. Call on Christ. Call on him today. Let's pray. Our Father and God, what good news we proclaim that salvation is full and free simply by turning to you through your son, Jesus Christ. It was his death that pays for our sin. It's his righteousness that allows us to stand before you acceptable. And we rejoice in this and glory in this and proclaim this to a dying and perishing world. Father and God, I do pray for each one here who doesn't know you, Lord, that you would open up their heart even now so as to save them. And that through us, Lord, we would reach many people with the gospel message. Bless us now, for we ask in Christ's name.